0: Let's pray and lift this time up before the Lord before we move on. Father, we praise you for the fact that you do go before us, that we are reminded of the fact that we do nothing in our own strength. Without you, we can do nothing. That includes this time this morning. We can't worship you appropriately without you. We can't submit our request to you apart from your spirit's intervention. We can't study and interpret your word correctly apart from you as the author divinely being involved in the process. And so we ask that your spirit would be involved this morning, that you would convict our hearts, that you would encourage our hearts, Lord, that you would speak powerfully through your word to help us see our need for the gospel, help us see our need for you. Father, use this time for your glory and for the good of your church. In Christ's name, amen. What do you believe is the greatest threat that our church currently faces? If I were to query you as a body, what do you believe is the greatest threat that Faith Bible Church currently faces as a church? Is it biblical illiteracy? The the pandemic of people who profess faith in Christ but are unfamiliar with the Bible that articulates that faith for us? Maybe it's our current leadership transition as we move from 30 years to the next 30 years of ministry that we face. Is it bad doctrine or false teaching, that perennial enemy of the church as false doctrine from the culture seeps into the culture of the church? Or maybe it is the culture itself, the hostile culture we face, the ever-increasing threat of persecution from a world whose worldview is in conflict with the worldview of the Bible. What is the greatest threat the Faith Bible Church faces? All of these, I confess, are extremely serious concerns that need to be dealt with on a number of different levels, but I do not believe they are the most dangerous thing our church faces today. I would argue the greatest current threat to our church is private, unconfessed, unrepentant sin in the lives of our body. Private sin that we think is unknown to anyone else, that we think is unseen by anyone else, that we think unaffects anybody else in the church that we're secretly holding on to has the potential to destroy our church. Sins like greed, thinking no one will ever know that we want more and more and more all the time. Sins like bitterness, as we harbor resentment against another person and think no one will ever find out about it. Sins like lust, and pride, and the list could go on and on and on, private sins that we harbor in the corners of our heart and think nobody knows about and no one will ever find out about. Why do I think these are the greatest threat that we face? Because these sort of private, quote-unquote, sins undo everything we're supposed to be and do as a church. They destroy our relationship with God and destroy our worship to Him. They interrupt and sabotage the fellowship we have with one another as we pursue Christ together. And they damage our public witness as the watching world is able to declare that we are the hypocrites they've always thought we were. I could go on and on for examples of how this is exemplified both in Scripture and in public life. From biblical heroes like the pride of Moses or the lust of David or the fear of men of Peter more modern-day figures like Bill Hybels or Ravi Zacharias, small, private, unrepentant sins have consistently shown their ability to demolish individuals and ministry. And it is a small, private, unrepentant sin is exactly what threatens Israel's conquest of the land here in Joshua 7 and 8. A private sin of Achan that he thinks no one knows about, that he thinks no one cares about, threatens to derail the conquest of the promised land. Thus far, Israel's been riding high in the bush of Joshua. In chapters 1 through 5, they established a new leader. They miraculously crossed over the Jordan River and they recommitted themselves to the service of God. Then last week in chapter 6, they began the conquest by easily defeating Jericho, this enormous walled city, with God's divine intervention. They have every reason to be confident. They have every reason to be excited as they continue the conquest. But in a moment, the whole endeavor is threatened by one issue, by one problem, by the private sin of one man. And as such, this passage serves as a warning sign for us. And it serves as a guide for us today about how to acknowledge and address the sin that we have in our own lives. It does so by describing Israel's own battle with sin in these two chapters. The whole story begins with Israel's self-destruction. Look at verse 1 as it summarizes what they're facing. Joshua 7 verse 1 says, But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, Son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. He gives us right off the bat what they're facing. Achan had taken some possessions from the city of Jericho in direct conflict with what God had commanded them to do. And he thinks it's a private thing, he thinks it's a hidden thing, he thinks no one will ever find out. But right off the bat, we learn that God knows the who, the what, the when, the why, the how, and the where. He knows everything that has taken place. And as a result, he is righteously angry with the people of Israel. He addresses the entire nation as having broken faith with him. Did you see that? It's not just Achan that is credited with breaking faith with the Lord here. It is the people of Israel. Achan's sin results in a corporate cost to the people of Israel. In this section, we see at least three corporate costs of sin. First we see fear on the part of the people in verses 2 through 5. They begin the assault of Ai with confidence. Look at verse 2. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-aven, east of Bethel, and said to them, "Go up and spy out the land." And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, "Do not have all the people go up, but let about 2 or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few." The people of Israel are understandably confident as they've just destroyed the city of Jericho with God's help. And I don't believe that this is pride or arrogance on their part because that's not addressed anywhere later in the text. They simply think God is still on their side. So they go up against Ai, but what happens? Look at verse 4. So about 3,000 men went up from the people and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. What starts with a confident assault of a tiny, insignificant city ends in a tragic loss. As the army flees before the men of Ai, and 36 of their soldiers die. Now, why would this have been such a shocker to the Israelites? Because they took out Jericho without the loss of a single man, and then they face this small opposition, and they lose 36 men. And we should note here that it is not Achan who dies yet. Achan's sin here results in the death of 36 other people. Did you see that? Imagine waking up that morning and Achan is convinced that he has hidden this sin from the rest of the people. He's hidden this sin from God. Nobody knows about what's going to take place. And they march up and maybe they're excited and maybe they're singing and they're sure that they're going to defeat the city. And by the end of the day, 36 of his brothers lie dead on the battlefield. Why? because of his private, hidden sin. And that fear that took over the army as they were beginning to be defeated spreads to the rest of the people. Look at the last part of verse 5. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. The hearts of the people melted. Their courage and their confidence melted away. Now, this phrase should be familiar, the idea of their courage melting away Is the same term that Rahab used of the people of Jericho that stood in opposition to God. But here in this verse, because of the private sin of Achan, the Canaanites' fear falls on Israel. We see a flipping of the script as the fear that had consumed the Canaanites in Jericho is now consuming the Israelites. Their sin results in fear, as they no longer have the confidence that they can do what God is calling them to do because they have been beaten badly. But in the following verses, we see a second result of Achan's sin, frustration. In verse six through nine, we see the leader's response. Look at verse six. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. He and the elders of Israel, they put dust on their heads. The leaders of Israel are not surprisingly mourning, looking to God and saying, What happened? Why have we been defeated? You promised us to be strong and courageous. You said, be strong and courageous. I have given you the land. What has taken place, God? So they tear their clothes, and they fall down before the ark, and they throw dust on their heads. They are in mourning. And then they issue this prayer of lament. Look at verse 7. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all, to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O oh Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before the, their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut, us, or cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? You hear the frustration in his voice? You hear the lack of understanding? He's saying, what's going on, Lord? It's a prayer of lament. Remember when we studied the prayers of lament, this Last summer, and we studied how lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. He expresses his grief. He expresses his frustration with the Lord. He says, why is this taking place? And then he grounds it in God's name. And what will you do for your great name? He's frustrated. Why? Because sin results in frustration. God has commanded them to do something. He thought that God was going to enable them to do it, and now it's not working. And he goes, what's going on? Well, God explains what's going on. And we see the final result of this corporate sin failure. Look at verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? I love love this interaction between Joshua and God here. I'm sure there are other examples throughout Scripture, but this is the only one that I can think of where God commands his people to stop praying. He says, you're praying. Get up. I have something I need you to do. The action they need to be taking is clear. There is action that needs to be taken in this situation. He says, let me explain why this is taking place. Look at verse 11. Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. He says the reason they are failing is because of their sin. They have broken the covenant. They have broken faith with me. And note again, he reinforces the corporate nature of their failure. The cost of this sin doesn't just fall on Achan. It falls on all of the people. They have taken... They have stolen. They have lied. The people are accused corporately of the sin of the individual. Now remember, this was God's clear command from last week in chapter 6, verse 18, when he told them, don't take the things that are devoted to the Lord from Jericho. I have set this city apart for my purposes as a first fruit for me. Don't take the things. Well, that's exactly what Achan did. And so what's the cost of this? Look at verse 12. He says, therefore, therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted thing from among you. God says, here's the cost. Israel is now failing in battle because there is a secret, private, hidden sin in the camp. And while the fear that was supposed to fall the Canaanites has turned and is now falling on the Israelites, now the curse that was supposed to fall on the Canaanites is turning and is falling on the Israelites. You see the flipping of the script throughout this whole story. The Canaanites are supposed to be scared. The Israelites are supposed to be courageous. The Canaanites are supposed to be under the wrath of God, devoted to destruction, and the Israelites are supposed to be doing that destruction. But here it's the Israelites that are devoted to destruction because they have become devoted for destruction the sin results in fear the sin results in frustration and ultimately their sin results in failure they are unable to do the thing that god has called them to do which brings us to the principle we need to see that sin is corporately costly Sin has a corporate cost that it takes out on other people around us. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 5 when we were studying 1 Corinthians last year and how Paul writing to this Corinthian church says, there is a man in your midst who is engaged in sexual immorality and I want you to put him out of the church because a little leaven leavens the whole. Sin has a corrupting effect on the whole. It affects and it causes carnage all around us. In that way, our corporate identity is much like a chain, right? It has a certain strength to do what needs to be done, but if you have one weak link in the chain, the whole chain breaks. We're dependent upon one another. We don't sin in isolation. There is no such thing as a private, hidden, unknown sin because God sees all and God knows what's going on here. What's the application of this? we must learn to cultivate a healthy fear of sin in our lives. Not a fear as being dominated by sin. We've been freed from sin. But a healthy fear of the carnage that sin wreaks out on a people. And we only realize this when we witness the devastation of sin's effects. But think about it. Think about where you see the effect of sin in your everyday life. Sin has a devastating effect on our world, does it not? Death and pain and tears and disease and all sorts of unknown evils that we see day in and day out are directly the result of sin. They are the result of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God saying, we don't want what you have for us, God. And so the world groans. All of creation groans under the effect of sin, Romans 8 says, awaiting The recreation, awaiting being freed from sin. Have you witnessed the devastating effects of sin on our church? The way sin spreads, the way sin corrupts, the way sin wounds. Think of the church in Thyatira in Revelation chapter 2, where God says, You need to address this sin because it's infecting your whole church. How about the effects of sin on our families? The effect of one individual's sin and the way it has an impact on everybody else in that family. One bad decision. One hidden private sin affecting the whole family unit. Think of this generation that Joshua was leading. The entire reason that they are having to conquer the land rather than sitting comfortably having already possessed it is because of the failure and sin of their parents. And chiefly, the cost of sin has a devastating effect on our relationship with Christ. As we put up barriers, as we stiff-arm God and say, we don't want what you want, we're going to do our own thing. Thank you very much, Lord. So what is that sin for you? What is that private, unrepentant, unconfessed sin that you think no one will ever notice because no one knows? that you think it won't have an impact on the people around you because nobody will find out. What is it for you? I would submit to you that if you witness the devastating effects of sin and you realize sin for what it actually is, then you will begin to adopt God's hatred for it. In Proverbs chapter 6, we have an interesting section. Turn to the right in your Bibles to the book of Proverbs Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19 details what's known as a vice list, a list of sins that rightly fall under the condemnation of God. It's not meant to be an exhaustive list, it's just meant to exemplify some of our common vices and sins. In Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19, we read, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, A lying tongue and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Now, again, that's not meant to be an exhausted lift, but it's meant to exemplify some of the sins, the private things that we tend to hold on to. Do you have God's hatred for sin? Do you recognize the devastation that it wreaks on a people, you know, including your own life, and address it as such? And as a second note, unless we see sin for what it is, we will never engage in what we've encouraged ourselves to do in Matthew 18 with corporate sin and dealing with sin in the body and even sending somebody out of the church if necessary. Here's the crux of the matter. When we see sin for what it truly is, and we see sin for what it really causes, we will cultivate a healthy fear of it in our lives. We will be frightened by the devastation that it wreaks in our hearts and in the lives of those we love. But here in this section of Joshua, now that the sin has been recognized, the perpetrator must also be identified. And in verse 13 through 26 of chapter 7, we see Israel's inquisition. God repeats his command get up. And then he gives them a plan for addressing this sin. The plan has three steps preparation, identification, and condemnation. He begins with preparation. Look at verse 13. He says, Get up, consecrate the people, and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. It says, consecrate yourselves, prepare yourselves. Those of you that were with us a few weeks ago in Joshua 3 know that this idea of consecration is setting oneself apart for the purposes and plans of God. It's this idea of ritual and spiritual preparation as we say, whatever you have, Lord, we will do. They were consecrated before they crossed the Jordan River. And God says that the victory is impossible until the sin is addressed. So he says, let me tell you how I'm going to identify the sin in your midst. Look at verse 14. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. He says, I'm going to devote or I'm going to explain how you're going to find out about the sin. It's a bit of a drawn out process. We'll address that here in just a moment with four steps. First, he says, wait until morning, prepare yourselves for this process, and then I'm going to identify your tribe, Levi, Simeon, Judah, whatever the case might be, then I'll identify the clan or the group of people, and then I will identify the household, and then I will identify the individual. This is what would have been in the mind of both Achan and the rest of the people of Israel saying, What's going to happen in the morning? And then he explains what the condemnation needs to be. Look at verse 15. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. The sentence here is they will be killed and burned with fire. And the justification for that is they have transgressed the covenant. And they have done an outrageous thing. We thought this was just a little, private, personal sin. But here, this sin is deathly serious. And it must be addressed, if the people of Israel, to do what God is calling them to do. And so Joshua does exactly that. And we see Joshua's obedience in verse 16 through 21. Again, it starts, So Joshua rose early in the morning. Again, I'm just going to say, Rising early in the morning has its value. I know that's hard for some of you. But it expresses this idea of Joshua being zealous to obey God. He's excited to do what God has commanded him to do. And so he executes God's plan. Look at verse 16 through 18. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe. And the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clans of the Zarahites were taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zarahites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near the household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zebdi, son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah, was taken. You get the rhythm here? It's a drawn-out process. Let's try tribes, let's see which tribe comes up, Judah. Let's see which clan comes up, the Zarahites. Let's see which household comes up, Zabdi. Let's see which man comes up, Achan. And the whole time Achan is sitting there sweating. Maybe he's standing there with his wife and they're like, don't worry, we're, nobody's going to find out. I mean, what are the odds, right? Judah. That's a coincidence, right? The Zarahites. Well, that's getting a little bit personal. Zabdi. Okay, maybe something's going on here. Achan. And I want to note that Achan never identifies himself throughout this whole process. The process is drawn out, giving Achan the opportunity to say, yeah, it was me. But instead, he keeps it hidden, he keeps it undercover, and he says, God doesn't know. He's never going to find out. And In this respect, it's very similar to the Israelites marching around Jericho for seven days. Ever wonder why that process is so drawn out? As God commands the people to march around the city of Jericho for seven days, and the people of Jericho, though they know God had parted the Red Sea, or the Jordan River, though he know he parted the Red Sea, though he knows, or though they know they're coming in to conquer them, for seven days they stay inside their city, and they don't repent, and they don't wave the white flag. They say, we can still take them. And here, when the tribe of Judah is called up, and... The clan of the Zarahites and the household of Zabdi and the man Achan, none of that time does Achan say, Yep, it was me. Said he's hoping God doesn't know. But ultimately he's found out in verses 19 through 21, he confesses. Look at this section. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done, and do not hide it from me. And Achan answered the Lord God of Israel. Or excuse me, and Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. And I believe here in this section what Achan shows is sorrow over being caught, not genuine repentance over sinning against God he didn't say, hey, it was me. He waits until it's found out and then he comes forward with it. And he details the story of what took, ha- or what took place, how he saw these beautiful treasures and how he coveted them and how he took them for his own sake. Now, we'll find out later that he didn't take them because he needed the money. Achan already had all the money he wanted, but he was worried about having more. It was covetousness. And this cloak from Shinar is a cloak from Babylon, which would have been like the Paris of the day. It would have been what showed you to be up and coming and fashionable in society. And what he shows here is a very familiar pattern from the Old Testament. Multiple times throughout the Old Testament, we see this pattern of seeing something, seeing that it is good or beautiful, coveting that thing, and then taking it, as this is the pattern that sin develops in our hearts. It's a familiar pattern from Eve in the garden as he saw the fruit and took it, to Hamor's rape of Dinah in Genesis chapter 34. It's the undoing of Samson in the book of Judges as he sees Delilah and wants her and takes her. It even leads to the same pattern that's displayed in David's adultery with Bathsheba. This process of seeing something, seeing that it is good, coveting that thing, and then taking it. This is the dangerous pattern of sin in our lives. And it's the root of so many sins as we long for something other than what God has given us. Say, if I just had that thing, that job, that possession, that person, I would be happy. It begins to work on our hearts. And we think, we'll just take it privately, we'll just take it secretly, and no one will ever find out. Well, Numbers 32, verse 23 says, be sure your sin will find you out. It may be in this life, or it may be in the next, but God sees all and God knows. You can't hide it from him. And it is with that recognition that Achan's fate is sealed. And we see ex- or Achan's execution in verse 22 through 26. First, the sin is confirmed. Look at verse 22. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. And behold, it was hidden in the tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Acor. Sin is confirmed. It's made public. They confirm that it's in the tent and they bring everything out of the tent along with what has been invited into the tent, this dedicated to destruction item And then the sin is eradicated in verse 25. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. Just like last week, we find ourselves wounded, concerned by the judgment of God here. As Achan is stoned and burned with his entire household, Now, there's a couple of things I want to note when it comes to this particular text. The first is, I think in this passage that the complicity of Achan's family is presumed. It's implied because in Deuteronomy 24 verse 16, God clearly lays out in the law that sons and daughters will not be put to death for the sins of their fathers and fathers will not be put to death for the sins of their children. So I believe that Achan's family was complicit in this and yet... Achan's family would not have been killed if Achan had not brought the sin into his tent. It's a serious passage that we have to recognize what's going on. God is not being unjust. God is not being unfair with this family or with Achan. But he is addressing the sin at its source. And what you have here is a fascinating family swap, if you will. Have you ever seen that old show, Wife Swap? I'm not not advocating it, okay, for for the record. I don't even know that I've ever seen an episode of it, okay? What happens is two families swap the wives and then all ridiculousness breaks in, right? And that's exactly what you see here. As this heathen, pagan city of Jericho, one family is redeemed out of it. And as the people of Israel, this idyllic community, if you will, one family Is pulled out of it and judgment falls on them. This emphasizes the doctrine known as total depravity that each and every one of us, the source of the sin in our lives, is not those around us, it's not our culture, it's not our community, it is our own hearts. You are not sinful because of your environment. You do not have this will to disobey God because of your culture or because of the outside influences on you. You sin because that's exactly what your heart wants to do. And any worldview that denies that is patently unbiblical. The Bible teaches that our sins are totally, or our hearts are totally depraved. That we stand in open rebellion against God, wanting to do whatever we want to do. And so these two families are swapped as one family that we wouldn't expect is redeemed out of Jericho and one family that we thought had the perfect opportunity to obey God is shown to be rebellious and sinful. And these two families are swapped. And the sin is memorialized in verse 26. Look at this. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Achor means trouble. The Valley of Trouble. And they heap this pile of stones. They make this memorial to what has taken place here. And show that all sin will ultimately be judged. All sin will ultimately be dealt with. So what's the principle for us? What do we need to remember from this? In addition to sin being corporately costly, sin is personally deadly. Sin is poison. Romans 6.23 says it well, right? The wages of sin is death. The thing that sin brings about, death. So, how do we learn from Aiken's mistake? We must learn to commit to a lifelong fight with sin. We have to battle tooth and claw against this thing that would seek to wreck our faith and wreck our church. In Romans 8.13, we read, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The biblical term here is mortify. If you mortify, if you seek to hunt down and destroy the sin that is in your heart, do you seek to do that? Do you have an intentional plan and effort to seek out the sin that's in your heart and to destroy it? I'm not much of a hunter, probably most of you know that, but I know a lot of hunters and I grew up in hunting communities. And so I know how hunting works. I'm not really convinced it's worth the time, but it's something I understand. So the way deer hunting works, especially here in the fall when it's cold, is people go out and what's the first step? Well, they go and they buy a tag, right? You go out and you identify this is the deer I'm going to try to shoot, a buck or a doe or whatever the case might be. And then the next step is preparation, because you go, okay, now I have to figure out where these deer are at. And so you set up cameras, and you wake up really early in the morning, and you sit in the tree stand, and you see nothing. Okay, that's just my impression of hunting. But you look, you're like, where do the deer go, and what do they do? And so I need to be ready for where they're going to be at. And then you spend hours in target practice, practicing your bow shooting or practicing your gun shooting so that you know that you'll hit the target when it comes. And then you prepare that mount on the wall, right? So when you get that 30-point buck... Right? Or you prepare that social media post so when you don't get the 30 point buck, you tell everybody you do, right? You have a plan and you execute the plan. You hunt down that deer and take it step by step. And yet it's startling that most of us put this sort of time and intentionality into hunting like this and we don't have the time to develop a plan for addressing the sin in our own hearts. Just like hunting, getting the tags, the first step is identifying the sin call the sin a sin we tend to minimize we tend to try to shrink it down well that's just a personality trait or that's just the way I am or that's just the way I was raised or that's just the list goes on and on begins by identifying our target call the sin a sin it's an affront to a holy God call it what it is and then study that sin Not in that sort of way, but know the pattern of that sin. Know where it presents itself in your life. Know how it's triggered in your life. James 1.15 describes this pattern of sin developing in our hearts and then manifesting in outside behavior. So identify the sin. Know where it lives. Know where it dwells in your own heart. And then have a plan to fight it. In Colossians 3.5-17, Paul lays out a plan to fight sin. To address sin, to replace it with holy affections. If that's something you're not familiar with, I'd encourage you to read Colossians 3, 5 through 17 this afternoon. As we replace the affection of sin with a better affection. And then lastly, be willing to share it. Be willing to share both the successes and the defeats. This is where the small group ministry of the church comes in a place where you can be honest and transparent with other people and say, hey, this week didn't go well. But this week did. This is what God is doing in my life. This is what God is doing to root out the sin that has been hiding in the corners of my heart. But I would encourage that it starts with committing today. Commit today to battle sin whenever and wherever God reveals it in your life. Fight like it's a war because it is seeking to devour you today. And I'll confess that at this point, this sermon is a bit of a downer. We're probably all feeling a bit overwhelmed as we've seen God's judgment on Israel and God's judgment on Achan. And maybe asking ourselves, is there any hope in this passage? I think that's why it's so important that we don't finish with chapter 7, but we move on to chapter 8, because chapter 8 details Israel's restoration. In chapter 7, Israel lost God's pleasure and they lost, or they quit obeying, and the result was defeat But in chapter 8, all three of those are restored. We see restoration of God's pleasure, restoration of Israel's obedience, and restoration of victory to them. We don't have time to go through it exhaustively, but let me highlight a few things. First, God's pleasure in verse 1 and 2. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given it into your hand, the king of Ai, and his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. See that the courage of the people is restored as God's victory is assured. And then, this is so painfully ironic, God offers them the plunder of the city of Ai. Think about that. This note reveals the insanity of Achan's sin. If he had just waited. But he had to have it now from the city of Jericho, and he couldn't wait until God had turned over the plunder from the city of Ai. And so due to his impatience, he takes it when he's not supposed to have it. And if he had just waited for Ai, he would have been able to take plunder anyway. That reveals the insanity of all of our sin. Sin is at its core always insane. It's taking something that isn't ours, that God hasn't given to us. Even though God has promised us immeasurable riches in eternity, we say, I have to have it now. But dealing with the sin restores God's pleasure here, which makes way for the people's obedience once again in verses 3 through 23. Now, I don't have time to explain this whole thing, but essentially what takes place is God commands the people to go up against Ai and put one force in front of the city and another force behind the city, And when the people come out to fight them, he says, run away to feign like you did last time. And when they chase you to kill you, the other force comes around and takes out the city and then you capture them in between. That's exactly what they do. Israel obeys God's strategy here perfectly. I'd encourage you to read about it here this afternoon. And once again, they experience victory at the end of the chapter. Look at verse 24. And when Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword... All Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who failed that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand, with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoils of the city Israel took as their plunder, according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. Once again, just like in the situation of Achan, the sin is eradicated. The people of Canaan that were rebelling against God, God has commanded them to come in and to wipe them out so they don't become like those people. And the sin is dealt with. And then the sin is also memorialized. Look at verse 28. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins, as it is to this day. And he hanged the key of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones which stands there to this day. Just like Achan, Ai is destroyed, it is burned, and a pile of stones, a memorial, is heaped in front. And notice how Achan's fate here is intentionally linked to Ai's. Notice how the same terminology is used of Achan as is used of AI. Here, the people of God are those that repent. The Israelites are those that repent. And those that rebel against them, the Canaanites, are those that stand at a distance from God. And Rahab and her family are invited into Israel, and Achan and his family are rejected. And Israel now has four monuments in the Promised Land. They have two, one at the Jordan and one at Gilgal, to memorialize God's faithfulness. And now they have two memorials of God's judgment. One over the body of Achan and his family and one in front of the city of Ai. And this is to be a reminder to them on an ongoing basis. But I think the principle, the moral of this story is that sin is not the end of the story. It wasn't the end of the story in Joshua 7. And it isn't the end of the story for us as well. How does restoration, how does the return of God's pleasure and the return of obedience and the return of victory come to the New Testament saint, come to us? Therein lies the application. The application for us, in addition to committing to fight sin, and in addition to recognizing the pain and the fear of sin that we need is to cling to your blood brought Freedom from sin. We don't have salvation. We don't have restoration through some sort of judgment, through some sort of judge doling out this within our culture, within our society, within even the church. But we recognize that our righteousness is found in and through the person of Jesus Christ. And I don't think it's ironic that sin entered the tribe of Israel, the people of Israel, through one man's sin, and through the death of one man, sin is eradicated. Seems kind of familiar to me. As Paul would write in Romans, through Adam's failure, sin enters the human race, and through Christ, the second Adam's sacrifice, sin is dealt with. Only in that situation, the sin didn't fall on the perpetrator, the sin fell on Jesus. As he came to deal with this sin, to take on the carnage and devastation on his body that each and every one of us deserved. We deserve to be laid out as a memorial of the devastating effects of sin, but instead we look to the cross. And we receive God's pleasure through Christ. As we are viewed through the righteousness of Christ, as God sees us through his Son's righteousness, And our obedience is made possible to the commands of God through Jesus Christ as he earns it for us and He sends his Holy Spirit to enable us to live in obedience to him. And we experience God's victory through Christ as we look to him, the founder and perfecter of our faith, and we look forward to one day when our eternity is guaranteed through Christ. All of these things come to the believer through the person and work of Jesus Christ. We don't stand under this sort of judgment like Achan did because Jesus paid it all. For the Christian, our freedom from sin, our victory over sin, are found in and through Jesus Christ. They are found in the gospel. And this is why, as the believer, whether you are new to your faith or whether you've been a believer for 40 years, we come back again and again to the truth of the gospel that Christ did for us what he could only do and we could never do. You don't outgrow the gospel. You don't move beyond the gospel because the gospel is everything for the Christian. It's why we don't have to worry about the sort of punishment that Achan experienced here. And it's why we don't have to worry about eternal punishment and separation from God in hell. But even though that those are the cases, this story still stands as a terrible example of the pain and the carnage of sin. And it's meant to teach us to recognize sin for what it truly is. Because when we recognize sin for what it truly is, we will cultivate a healthy fear of it. We will flee from sin because we see the carnage that it deals out in our lives and in the lives of those we love. We will commit to a lifelong fight with sin, having a plan of attack and saying we will mortify sin every day until Christ returns or we die. And we will cling ultimately to our blood-bought freedom from sin, saying, Christ, I will fail again and again, but I run again and again to the cross. And I can think of no better way to end than with the Apostle John's words in his first epistle in 1 John. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, John pens these words. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with his desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. Father, I ask that the truth of this passage would sink into our hearts and our minds. Lord, that you would press in the reality of how dangerous sin is, how we don't sin against you lightly and we don't keep it from you and we can't hide it in the corners of our heart. Give us the courage to commit to a lifelong battle with sin. But ultimately, Lord, when we fail, help us to run and again and again to the foot of the cross to recognize that Christ paid everything for us and we owe everything to him. In his name, amen.